As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. For the first time in 176 years, Cavalier Johnson has won the election for the mayor of the city of Milwaukee. The city of Milwaukee has elected its first black mayor. But the April election of 2022 changed so much more than that. A number of school districts in our area now have new leaders on the board. From big projects that went bust. It was the largest school referendum to fail in the state. To a partisan swing for nonpartisan boards. There was a kind of a resurgence by people who consider themselves conservative. The winds of change are blowing. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined by Fox 6 political reporter Jason Calvi. Welcome back to the podcast, Jason. Hey, great to be on, Brian. Thanks so much. We are recording this episode on Thursday, April 7th. Two days since 35-year-old Cavalier Johnson removed the word acting from his title, becoming the first black mayor in the history of the city of Milwaukee. And Jason, we're going to talk about the mayor's race. Obviously, that was the marquee race across the state of Wisconsin on Tuesday, but there was so much more at stake across the state. In southeast Wisconsin alone, more than 1,400 candidates were vying for more than 800 elected positions, not to mention dozens of referendums, both schools and other local governments. But I want to start with those supposedly nonpartisan school board races because the spring elections are nonpartisan. There's no D or no R behind anybody's name, but we know those races have become more partisan than ever, right? Yeah, we saw political parties involved across the region uh, in endorsing candidates or even supporting them with funding as well. Uh, For example, we saw in the Cedarburg district, this was a big race. We had eight candidates vying for four positions and the Ozaki Republican Party, they backed three candidates for the Cedarburg School Board and all three of them won this week. Uh, The Ozaki Democrats backed four candidates in Cedarburg and one of which won. Again, it was eight candidates for four positions. The GOP-backed candidates, all three of them won, and one of the four Democratic-backed candidates won in Cedarburg. And what this is what we're seeing really across the region here with, with political parties endorsing uh, various school board candidates. Um, for example, in uh, Elmbrook, uh, we saw there were two open races in, in Elmbrook for school board, and the conservative candidates won pretty, pretty handily in Elmbrook, uh, beating the uh, more progressive-backed candidates in the Elmbrook district. Uh, But there was one place in our region where we saw the conservative-backed candidates losing. That's Mequon-Thienesville, where um, the Ozaki GOP, they backed two candidates, and those two candidates lost in that school district. Um, And so that was one. We saw in Greendale, for example, Rebecca Clayfish, she backed candidates across across the state for these local elections and local school board races. And she did really well. Um, Her her team uh, and also I know uh, in our report last night, that was uh, Cassie Williams report on television. She talked about how something like 20 or 25, uh, most of the people that 
Clayfish endorsed won their races. Not all, but most of them won their races. I think about five of the people she endorsed didn't uh, didn't win the races. But for example, in Greendale, she endorsed two candidates. It was a four-person race. Uh, she endorsed two of the candidates and one of them won. So she was 50-50 in Greendale, but in other places, she she was uh, very successful in uh, endorsing the candidates that ended up winning. We saw Mononymy Falls. We saw uh, Waukesha, where the conservative slate won, uh, beat, beat the... Um, beat the, the progressive-backed candidates. So, uh, again, this is the school boards. This is something we don't normally talk about. I, I don't know, Brian, you've been here at Fox 6 for many years, more than I have. Do you re- ever remember talking about the school board elections as much as we've talked about it this time? No, I mean, and that's the thing. If you step back from all of these, you keep talking about the Republican-backed candidates or the progressive-backed candidates, and and that alone is something that seems unusual when talking about school board races because local elections, small town boards, whether it's boards of trustees, you know, in a village or a, or a board of supervisors at a county level or obviously in this case school boards, they are, we know, officially nonpartisan. You don't run as a Democrat. You don't run as a Republican or as an independent. You just run for the board and you're supposed to sort of represent everyone. But more and more politics, partisan politics have gotten involved. Why is that here in just, you know, just recently, Jason, that we've seen such an influx of partisanship and the partisan backing into these school board races? I think the school boards really have become the front lines of the culture wars. I mean, we've had so many heated discussions in all of those school districts I just mentioned. We've covered uh, school board meetings where they've been heated, where where uh, parents on both sides of various issues have been arguing, sometimes yelling, uh, sometimes protesting on, on both sides. Again, protesting various school boards on various issues. Um, we've seen big debates over what's taught in the classroom. We've, we've had various, um, meetings of school board committees where, where books have been read that, that parents find objectionable, where they're maybe talking about, um, maybe some sexual matters and, and the parents are reading them to the board and saying, this is not appropriate to read at the board meeting. It's not appropriate to have in the school library. That's happened in Elmbrook. That's happened in other, uh, school districts in our area. Uh, parents have been, I think, paying more attention to what's being taught because they had a year possibly where their students were being taught at home. So the parents might be looking over the student's shoulder and, and saying, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, what are they teaching here in this history class or what are they teaching here uh, in, in this uh, science class? I, I don't know if that's the, you know, that's the way things should be taught or maybe the literature course or history, whatever. Um, so there's been a lot of you know, parental involvement uh, in light of the pandemic, but also there's been a lot of fighting the pandemic mitigation protocols. So for example, we saw parents arguing against virtual learning and saying, hey, those kids need to be back in the classroom. Um, The kids don't need to wear masks. Uh, There's been a lot of debates both for and against those issues that no, the school should be virtual or no, that all the students should be wearing masks or they shouldn't. And so, you know, parents have really uh, seen all these issues. They've been showing up more to these meetings and paying more attention to what's being taught. And they're just been fired up. I mean, parents on both sides of the issue have had Facebook groups. They've been talking about this. They've been strategizing. And they've been showing up and making their voices heard on both sides of the issue. And they've been fired up. And so they wanted to have candidates that were too that supported them and and that that were backing what they wanted the school board to move forward. I mean, think about how important the school boards are. They are, they are, they're, they're the directing the, the culture, they're directing the vision, they're directing 
the, the, they're directing the future of the schools. And, and so when you're looking at forming and, and shaping the children for the future, um, this is the, the heart of, of these huge debates about what it means to be in our society and how best to run, uh, to run our local schools. And then, you know, all these other debates that I just mentioned also playing out in the, in those conversations across, across our region. Well, and when you talk about conservatives going head to head with, with uh, progressives, obviously that's sort of been the headline of the school board races, but there's another head to head that really grabs some attention here specifically. And that was in the Hartford school district where you had pride more versus pride more. Tell me about that and what <laughs> happened there. Yeah, that was an interesting race. So you had uh, you had a married couple, Don Pridemore uh, and and Tina Pridemore, and they were both running for the Hartford Union High School School Board. It's it's a big, huge school district, uh, many many square miles uh, in, in Washington County. And uh, Tina Pridemore was the incumbent, and and Don told me that. Uh, that he, he saw so many times where Tina would be outvoted on on the board, and so he said, "Well, I want to back her up. I want to join." So, and it's it's legal. There's no, as far as I know, there's no statute that forbids uh, a married couple from from running. This is uh, a race where you saw uh, four candidates vying for two positions. So the Pridemores were hoping that they could you know, run together as a team. And they did run together. They actually, uh, Don Pridemore, you may remember him. He ran against Tony Evers to be state superintendent of education many years ago. He's also a former member of the state assembly. So he used some of his signs when he was the, uh, running for state superintendent. They would white out uh, the state superintendent and, and write, uh, put a sticker with Tina's name. So it was Tina and Don Pridemore. Uh, we did a story on that. If you want to see the visuals of that, uh, take take a look at our uh, Fox 6 website. We've got that there for you. But uh, but yeah, the Pridemores were hoping to, to both get a position on the board, Tina the incumbent, but at the end of the day, Don Pridemore took Tina's position. Uh, he beat her by about 25 votes. And uh, so at the end of the day, it'll be, uh, it was Pridemore versus Pridemore. They were hoping to be Pridemore and Pridemore, but it's not the case. And, and I remember talking to the, uh, to the couple about this and I, I, I said, you know, you could potentially oust, oust each other. And, and Mrs. Pridemore, Tina Pridemore said, well, uh, I won't be offended if he, if he ousts me, but I, she says, I, I hope one of us gets on the board. And at the end of the day, one of them does get on the board. It's one thing to say that, Jason. I do wonder what, you know, the breakfast talk was like this, uh, you know, on Wednesday after those election results. You know, obviously he says he ran to help support her on the board and maybe give her some extra backing. Instead, he took her seat. Yeah, he did take her seat. Uh, and at the end of the day, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind about Don Pridemore is he's already on one school district. He, he's on the uh, the Hartford uh, elementary, a joint elementary school board. Now he's at the high school level in Hartford. They have, you know, various, uh, elementary school boards and then they have the big Hartford union school board as well. He was already on the elementary J one. Now he's going to be on two boards. And, uh, you know, there's questions about that during the competition, but it's been done before. It's not, uh, it, there's nothing that forbids that from happening. Um, and, and, uh, Don Pridemore, his argument when I said, well, is it really fair to, you know, it could be a conflict of interest to be on two boards. And is it really fair to be on two boards? And he said, uh, you know, it, it, most of the other school districts, like for example, in MPS, you have, you know, high grade school through high school, all one board running the school. So He's just kind of taking it upon himself. He's now on two boards, and he will be kind of uh, you know, leading both of these schools, both at the elementary and then at the, at the high school level. 
Speaking of contests, there were 25 mayor's races in southeast Wisconsin alone that were on the ballot. A lot of them uncontested, but uh, many of them were contested. We know about some of the big ones, obviously, the city of Milwaukee, and we're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. Brookfield, Waukesha, Cudahy, Delafield, so many more. What, what can you tell us about some of those mayor's races? You know, I think it was a big night for it was a good night for the incumbents. I mean, there was there was a lot of, you know, I think a big question that I had going into the race was, you know, people are are right now struggling with inflation. They're, they're struggling with just and now, of course, the local elected officials are not dictating economic policy that might lead to inflation or not. But there's just a lot of angst about cost of living right now. A lot of questions about our future. I was wondering ahead of the election, would there be. Uh, kind of a swell of support uh, for the uh, for the newcomers, for the challengers, kind of saying, okay, now is the time for change. We need to have a new vision for our local communities. But at the end of the day, that did not happen. In, in all of the races where we had in, in our local area that had incumbents, it looks like the incumbents did very, very well. For example, in Brookfield, you mentioned uh, Mayor Ponto has been the incumbent since 2010. Uh, he won 59% of the vote. And I, I drive through the Brookfield area quite a bit, and I saw signs all over the place for his competitor. I was really questioning, and okay, you know, at the end of the day, signs don't vote, okay? So I think that's another lesson I took away from this is that signs don't vote. But the Marcelo signs, he was the competitor. He actually ran, Dave Marcello ran against uh, Ponto in 2010, was a member of the Common Council with Ponto as well. Uh, I was thinking, man, it seems like Marcelo is doing very well looking at the signs amongst uh, Brookfield. But at the end of the day, Ponto, 59%. So signs don't vote. People vote. Uh, and, and again, uh, we saw in Waukesha, there was a big question there if the mayor there, Sean Riley, seeking a third term, uh, if he was going to be reelected. He had made waves. If you remember in, two th- in 2020, he actually made waves and national attention because he left the Republican Party in light of what happened on January 6th with those Capitol riots. He, he left the Republican Party. He actually said I, he was ashamed of the Republican yeah. Party, right? Yeah, he was ashamed to be a member of the GOP, and uh, Waukesha's the you know Waukesha and Waukesha County, a heart of Republican politics in Wisconsin. So I was wondering if there's going to be backlash there. He got sixty six percent of the vote. So again, overwhelming support for Mayor Riley to 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 uh, for his third term. He was seeking his third term. He got it. Uh, Cudahy as well, the mayor, the incumbent mayor there, fifty eight percent. Delafield, the incumbent mayor there, fifty six percent. Lake Geneva, the incumbent there, didn't do as well as uh, colleagues, but got fifty. 51% of the vote in Oconomowoc, the mayor incumbent there, 57% of the vote. So again and again, in our area, the incumbents did very well. And, and, and looking, for example, at Milwaukee, the incumbents usually do pretty well there. But there wasn't an incumbent this time. It wasn't an incumbent, but uh, he, he was the acting mayor. Uh, last time there was – the only other time we've had an acting mayor in Milwaukee, Marvin Pratt, did lose to Mayor Tom Barrett in 2004. Uh, this time around, the acting mayor was able to, to win and, and won handily, 72 percent. Of course, there wouldn't have been an election in Milwaukee had it not been for Tom Barrett being appointed to the U.S. Yeah. ambassador mm-hmm. to, uh, to Luxembourg. But had this been a, a typical election and, and Tom Barrett was running again, no one expects Tom Barrett would have lost because he's won again and again. And again, an incumbency in in Milwaukee in particular for mayor seems to be a very powerful thing. Yeah, very, very powerful. And, you know, there's there was talk, I you know, there's been talk of these these mayors being, you know, take it take it lightly here, but mayors for life. I mean, they, they do have to they do have face elections, but the support for the incumbents in Milwaukee has been overwhelming. And we've had only a handful of, of mayors um, in the last century. Um, and so it's just it's incredible to. Uh, to, to see how strong the support was for Cavalier Johnson uh, this week. I mean, there were, you know, 
he, he did do well in the primary. And we, there was a big question, okay, well, what about all these other candidates that were in the Milwaukee primaries race, the county sheriff, for example, where are those supporters going to go? And, and really, they all went to, they, they went to Cavalier Johnson. Cavalier Johnson did very well, 72%, winning 72% of the, the vote uh, this week in, in Milwaukee. And, and we know that uh, it was going to be historic no matter what, because this is the first Milwaukee mayor, new mayor in 18 years, um, <clears throat> replacing uh, or succeeding Tom Barrett. But obviously a much bigger deal in terms of the fact that he becomes the first black mayor of the city of Milwaukee in its history. Uh, he made a point of that in his acceptance speech in, in, in saying, you know, for first time in 176 years, you voted us, you know, voted the city a black mayor. Uh, obviously a, a really big deal for the city of Milwaukee. And now it's important to keep in mind that, that Milwaukee, I mean, we have we have a, a, a African-American police chief, an African-American mayor, an African-American county sheriff, and an African-American county executive. I mean, this is a historic times for for the county and for the city to have these top posts, these top elected posts, or the, not, the, not the police chief, but all the others are elected positions. All these peop, these top positions in the city and county are, are, are all black right now. A historic moment for, for the city. And I think, you know, one of the things that will be interesting to see is, is how this influences, uh, you know, people at the, at the, people that are in MPS right now the, the, or people that are in school right now, how, how this in, influences the next generation. Cavalier Johnson, 35 years old right now, right? He, he's 35 years old. Um, and, and to see what kind of uh, – what kind of uh, inspiration this might play for for young African American students to see uh, see this happening right now with his top leadership posts elected at the city now uh, an African American as well. There's been so much controversy over some of the members of his own family. His brother recently arrested uh, for a, a shooting. His nephew arrested for a sexual assault. And, and critics point to that and say, look at this. You know, How can he solve our crime problem when he's got crime in his own family? Others look at that. And, and Cavalier Johnson himself has said, um, you know, I, I within the same family, I stay. You know, I had all those influences. I rose above that. And, and there was a, a photo um, from election night that I thought was very poignant when you consider that very thing. There was a young, uh, you know, a, a, a boy of color. I assume he was a, a, a black young, maybe, I don't know how old, I'm guessing 12 years old, um, standing and looking at Cavalier Johnson, looking physically up at him because he's shorter, um, but looking up. And, and I thought there was a real some symbolism behind that because you imagine the influences that are all around the city of Milwaukee. Look at the reckless drivers. Look at the people committing gun violence. There are all sorts of terrible influences, but you have someone like Cavalier Johnson, or as you mentioned, the county executive. You have others for a young boy like that to look up to a role model and see there is a path forward and something great that I can do with my life. Exactly. I mean, totally, totally. That's what what we're what we're seeing with that young boy looking up to the mayor. That's a, a poignant image there. Um, and 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 you know, you'd mentioned the 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 trouble with the law that his uh, his some of his relatives have had, including his brother. And and what he you know, as you said, what he said is that uh, he, he talked about this in in the past is that um, he's bringing that background to the mayor's office, knowing what it's like to have family in in the criminal justice system in jail who have broken. Who, who, you know, broke the law. Um, and another brother who is a warden in a state prison, right? So he says he has both, both, he can see the perspective from both here. And, and that will be a unique perspective leading the city of Milwaukee. Well, speaking of the mayor, I mean, we, we can talk about the symbolism and the history and all that, but there's a practicality to this. Obviously, now Cavalier Johnson has the very difficult job of dealing with crime in the city of Milwaukee, dealing with reckless driving, trying to attract the Republican National Convention and all of these other things that go along with the, that. That raises the question of, what actually does the mayor have the power to do? What does the mayor of Milwaukee do? 
the mayor of Milwaukee is very powerful. I mean, <laughs> and you can see that when you look at who ran for for the primary. I mean, it was the who's who's. Uh, the who's who of Milwaukee politics. You had the county sheriff. You had a state senate, a longtime state senator. You had alder, former alderman, current alderwoman, uh, business w- person, and activist. I mean, you you saw so many people come out. I mean, I think a lot of us thought there was going to be even more. A lot of people did consider a run, and then at the end decided that uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't for them at this point. But the mayor of Milwaukee, very powerful. Uh, one of the things that they do is they oversee all the departments of the city, other than the police department. That is under in the fires under. Fire and Police Commission as far as uh, uh, appointing and, and hiring and firing police chiefs and things like that. So the mayor doesn't see that, doesn't oversee that. But he does, or, or she, if it was a she, uh, does oversee all the other departments. So think about the roads. Think about all the potholes. Uh, we did a, a instant poll and we asked, what is the number one issue besides crime for, for the city of Milwaukee? And they said, uh, you know, roads and potholes and things like that. So the mayor oversees the the, the streets department, sanitation, so your garbage pickup, uh, the water, uh, when you thinking about the lead, the lead, um, when you're talking about the, the, the lead remediation and, and how, how the city is going to take care of that and in the health department. So think about the COVID-19 protocols when right in the midst of the pandemic where the city of Milwaukee had instituted a mask mandate that was an ordinance passed by the common council and the, the mayor had, had signed it, uh, Mayor Barrett at the time. But there was also all these other protocols that the health department implemented uh, that keep people, what, what they wanted to do was protect people from the virus. So there was all these restrictions on businesses and there was a lot of pushback as well from the local businesses uh, you know, remember there was a time where uh, where they limited the number of people in in these venues and bars and restaurants and and even churches and things like that. I don't know if you know that was 2020. Um, that was all the health department. That's under the control of of the mayor. So I mean, there's so many ways. Whether you live in Milwaukee or don't, because I mean, so many people come to Milwaukee for a Bucks game or to go to a restaurant or to, to go to a concert, and the health department really overseeing so much of the interaction with you uh, or the interaction with you when you're um, looking uh, for parking or dealing with the potholes and things like that. So there's so much that the, the mayor oversees that implements that imp- impacts people across the board, whether you live here or don't, or whether you work here or don't, or whether you come to a Bucks game or not. Uh, and then another thing that the mayor does, this is a crucial role of the mayor, is he, dr- he or she drafts the budget, $1.7 billion budget. So we're talking about a lot of cash that the mayor is going to prioritize and say, okay, we're going to put a certain chunk of millions of dollars into violence prevention. We're going to put so much money into lead remediation of, of the uh, old water mains as well as lead paint in homes, or we're going to put so much money into uh, hiring more police officers. Um, there was big debates about how many police officers to hire and how much money to use from the federal uh, stimulus money or the fe- federal recovery money that was coming into the st- uh, state, into the city, how much of that money to use or if any of that money should be used to hire new police officers in Milwaukee. So these are all the things that the, the mayor is going to spearhead. He's, he's going to, Mayor Kevlar Johnson is going to have to put together that budget and really prioritize it and set a vision. Now, if the Common Council, though, does have a vote and will approve or amend that uh, budget, then the mayor will then be able to veto. But, um, but there's just so much that the mayor is going to symbolize through what he, he puts in the budget. I mean, it's really, it's said that budgets are a moral document, but budgets really are also a symbolic document, setting the tone and the vision. And really practically, we, once it's implemented, that budget's going to go and it's going to be in effect and it's going to really set set the tone and the tenor for the city and, and its future. Uh, so that's a, another big thing. And then the other thing that the mayor does is a symbolic role, right? The mayor's there when there's 
when there's tragedy, when there's suffering, the mayor will be there to offer a comforting word. Uh, similar to what the, the role of the president is as a comforter in chief, I would say. And, and we're going to see that with the, with the mayor also being a symbolic leader and trying to recruit business, trying to recruit those big conventions. So when the Republican National Committee was looking and is still right now currently looking at bringing the convention to Milwaukee or Nashville, Mayor Cavalier Johnson was there at the big dinner and he made a presentation and Republicans said, wow, they were so impressed with Cavalier Johnson selling the city, selling uh, the Republicans on the city and saying this is the best choice and thinking about all that business, all that attention that will come if the city, if, if Milwaukee hosts the RNC in 2024. Well, obviously, a lot of power there, a lot of influence, and and uh, also a tough job ahead for the mayor when you consider the fact that there is a pension crisis that is looming. Uh, so while he has uh, you know a lot to celebrate in terms of being, being the first black mayor of the city uh, in 176 years, he's also got a really tough job ahead because when it comes to setting priorities – the, the pension crisis is going to make it harder to prioritize. There's going to be a lot more money going toward paying off pension debt, and that means less money for things like police and housing and, and other priorities. Exactly, and that was, I mean, in the last budget, Mayor Barrett's last budget, it was definitely discussed that this we were pretty much on, on a cliff here. This would be the last normal budget before, before we reach that point where things are really going to have to change. And also have to keep in mind that in this last budget, there was the American Rescue Act money, tons of money, million, hundreds of millions of dollars coming in um, and, and supporting and helping the city. And so that was able to fill a lot of the holes and, and, and including hiring new uh, police officers, even though at the end of the day, the Common Council, they, they had to do some accounting issues here so that the American Rescue Act money was – going to the fire department and then the fire department money was going to the police department. They didn't want to use the American Rescue Act money to hire the police officers. Kind of confusing issue. I hope I didn't lose the audience there. But uh, at the end of the day, that, that federal money did help fill in a lot of holes for Milwaukee this year. The next time the budget comes around, it's going to be a totally different story with, uh, with, that, with that money. Now, we have money coming in this year, uh, 2022, but when we're looking to the future years when that federal money's not there, big questions about what's going to happen. And, and we don't really know. I mean, it's a big, huge debate that's going to be playing out in City Hall and with this new mayor, Cavalier Johnson, and the Common Council figuring out what to do with that pension crisis that's really looming right now. Last big thing I want to talk about here before we, we move on to our off-the-record segment, and that is school referendums, because there were so many, 81 of them across the state of Wisconsin, $1.26 billion on the line. And we know that uh, historically they have actually been very successful. Just a few years ago, 90% of the referendums that were put to voters across the state passed. It dropped to 61% last year, and, and I kind of wondered if that was going to be a trend that would continue downward because of things like inflation and, and sort of some of the economic pressures that are there. But as it turns out, 80% of voters across the state approved school referendums. But the biggest one in the state went down in flames. West Dallas, West Milwaukee, right? Yeah, that was that is the biggest one. That was the largest price tag on on the ballot this week in West Dallas, West Milwaukee. $149 million. It was a plan to close the two high schools in the district, which is Nathan Hale and then Central. And they were going to then build a brand new combined high school for for the, for the district. Um, that was 149 million, and it went down. It's it's it failed um, pretty pretty handily. Um, and and I think there was actually a surprise amongst the opponents that they got that they were able to get. Uh, to get that that strong of a vote uh, on the referendum, uh, but there were a lot of questions at this point. You know, they 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 were going to be 
you know, they had just built, or in, you know, in the re- recent decades, they had, you know, built a new cafeteria at, at uh, Hale, and they both had performing arts centers that had been upgraded as far as seating and, and, and things like that. So there was questions of, well, now we're going to kind of tear them all down or, or, or not use them anymore and build this new thing. So there was questions about that. Um, but the, the supporters of the referendum were saying, you know, we got $60 million in capital improvements that need to happen. I mean, the electrical, the plumbing, it's, it's aging. And they're shrinking enrollment. They're losing students. They're losing students. They're saying, you know, we don't need to have, we don't need, they, they were saying they don't need to have these two schools anymore. And, um, and, and that, that, so now would be the time to, to go forward with the referendum. And what they were also pointing to is if you look at the tax rate, because the tax rate for the school district has been, has been de- decreasing year after year after year, they were saying if you add this referendum um, of a house of – that's valued at $200,000, they would see a, you know, $200, $230 more on their, de- on their yearly tax. So saying, OK, it's $200 more a year. But if you look at the trajectory, the rate has been decreasing over time. So they're saying actually adding that $200 to that $200,000 property owner's tax bill would be the same. It'd be actually lower than it has been since 2009 other than last year. So last year was much lower, but every other year up until 2009, it would actually be uh, – it would be the, – the, even adding that extra money with the referendum would still be lower than it was since 2009. So they're saying, hey, now is a good time to do it. The interest rates are, are – are, now they're getting higher, but they're still good. Now is the good time to do this, to do this project when, we, when they have $60 million estimated in, in work that needs to be done on the existing buildings. Why not just – build this new building, build this new combined school. But it came down 59% of the voters said, no, no, thanks. So back to the drawing board in West Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. West Dallas, West Milwaukee voters. Yeah. 59% of them voted no on this uh, school referendum. So uh, what, what comes next is still an open question, but I think the, the, the district uh, is given a message here, clear, clear message from the voters that the current project they didn't approve of. So what's going to happen next is, is more discussions about, potentially how to get more support from the community on a project and and maybe how to how to deal with some of these uh, opposition questions that were brought up uh, during the various uh, debates and during our s- stories that we covered as well, uh, our story that we covered where we looked at some of these issues. So if you want to see, for example, some of the show and tell that the school district gave us to show, hey, look at these these uh, these old facilities there. They have, you know, for example, the kitchen lab hasn't changed since the 60s. Um, electrical plumbing all needs major work. Um, so if you want to hear and see all that, uh, we've got the story on, on our website as well. So uh, we'll wrap it up with this thought. Obviously, there were other winners. Uh, we know that Fox Point uh, and uh, Fox Point Bayside uh, voters approved a referendum that will mean a new middle school and renovations to an ele- elementary school. And that district feeds into Nicolay, which ap- approved a $77.4 million referendum for all sorts of things, including new athletic fields, security upgrades, HVAC and whatnot. So there were certainly more winners than losers when it comes to referendums. Jason, I want to wrap up with one final thought before we go to off the record, and that is this. This is a spring election that historically and officially has been nonpartisan, but we know partisanship played a role in almost every one of these races. Is that here to stay? I think so. I mean, I think so. For example, when you look at the Republican Party of 
Wisconsin, they they came out with a statement. They said, you know, conservatives were successful in two thirds of the races in which they were active. I think based on the fact that they that conservatives really did very well statewide on these local races. Um, I think they're they're definitely going to be involved, both Republicans and Democrats, because they, they, there's just so much on the line. And and really, when you look at the way things have played out, there's just so much conflict about the best vision for even our local communities. So, yeah, I do believe that the politics, the, the political groups, the left versus right, conservative versus progressive are here to stay at these local elections. And we just see the results that happened this week and we see how successful the conservatives were. I think it's going to animate them to get involved even more in the future. But also uh, the progressives, the Democrats as well, seeing so much what's at stake here. I think they're also going to continue to invest in these races as they did. I mean, there were, for example, Waukesha, there's there's various groups. There's one group called Waukesha United who invested in the progressive candidates. Um, Waukesha United might confuse you because you're thinking, is that the United for Waukesha fund that everybody donated to after the parade attack. No, it's a different group, but they have a similar sounding name and they voted, uh, they they donated thousands of dollars uh, in support. They didn't uh, donate to the candidates, but they used the money to uh, put out flyers and things going door to door to support several of the candidates. And then you saw a group uh, called Blue Sky. They're trying to flip Waukesha County blue. So I think there's just lots of money. And we also saw on the Republican side, some a group called Wiss Red, which is uh, an affiliate of the Waukesha Republican Party. They were heavily involved with these races. I, do, I don't think it's, I, I think it's here to stay. I think that you're gonna see more and more of these outside groups getting involved in the local races because so much really is on the line. Local politics impacts all of our lives. When we are talking about the mayor's race in, in Milwaukee and all that the mayor does, potholes, garbage, uh, safety, you know, how we're gonna fight COVID-19. That's the mayor who's leading the charge on all those issues with his staff that he that he hires and that he uh, appoints. Um, so we're going to see this, I think, continuing to, to play out for years to come here in Wisconsin. We're a swing state. And it's time for us to go off the record. The part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And we are joined once again with that question by Sarah Smith. What's going on, Smitty? Hi, guys. Um, Jason, let me say that, first of all, thank you for all your coverage um, these follow these weeks that led up to the election. Also, I've seen you and talked to you more in the last four days than I have in about two years, <laughs> and I really like it. Anyway, okay, so today um, my question is, our phones, we're constantly on them, touching them, doing stuff, apps and stuff. You have to delete all but three apps. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Which three apps do you keep? All but three? Yeah, I know. So, I mean, I get it. Like, some have to stay, you know, like, that you might need for work. But, like, as far as, like, maybe the extra ones that you've downloaded or whatever, or installed. <laughs> downloaded? What am I? A boomer? Okay. Anyway, so here's the three that I think I would keep. Amazon. <laughs> um, I go on that way more frequently than I should. Um I will say I, I do want to keep one of the social media ones, like Instagram or something. I feel like I need some You would some keep Insta scrolling. over Facebook. Yeah. Interesting. Facebook is kind of, yeah. I don't, yeah, I guess I don't know. Oh, probably my podcast player. I do listen to a lot of podcasts through my phone, so I have Stitcher. Um, and so that's that's probably the three I would keep. So, Jason, your thoughts? Okay, so we have some apps that we have to have for work, like Slack. 
I mean, you like have to. Yeah, you those, have to those have. We're not counting that. Yeah. We're not those counting. don't count. Yeah. Okay, okay. So the three apps that I'm going to keep on my phone are definitely the the maps, the navigation, because <laughs> yeah. I can't find my way anywhere. That's a fair point, Jason. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so definitely keeping the maps. I mean, and, and okay, I'll be honest with you. I people probably don't know this, but we haven't really been in the station. Those of us who are reporters haven't been in the station really since 2020 March. Uh, I was in the station one time and. I was probably one of the very few reporters that was allowed back November 2020 because of the election. I was back for one day. And then this week, I was back for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to cover the election again. But other than that, I hadn't been back since 2020. Um, so recently, I was driving to the station, and I literally overshot it. I mean, I kept going. I was I don't even know where I was. I was, in, I don't know, Mequon or somewhere else. And uh, so, yeah, uh, really crazy, just kind of... I guess I was zoned out and I just kept driving. So uh, I definitely want to have the Maps app on my phone. I really like my books on tape, which so I use Overdrive, which is from the public library. And so I use Overdrive and listening to books on tape is something I, 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 I really enjoy. And then thirdly, I also would keep the podcast. I, I enjoy listening to, to news podcasts and kind of keeping up to date with those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, podcasts, my books on tape, app, which is Overdrive, and then my maps. Now, we're not counting built-in apps, right? Like like the music app so that I can listen to no, the songs. No, that I, so, no, I mean, no. we're, we're keeping... Okay. But for me, Facebook, and I say that because... I know that for, for maybe a younger generation, that's so passe now, but I communicate to so many people in the various places I have lived through Facebook and or Messenger, um, Facebook Messenger. So, uh, you know, I, I've lived by working in this business, I've lived in six or seven different places and you leave pockets of family and friends behind in, in so many of these places that Facebook is the one central place I can find people, um, old people high school classmates, uh, you know, college classmates. So, so I think that's probably a, a big one. Um, and then, uh, I, I would, I, I guess like I want to, I want to get rid of TikTok, but I, you know, it's like one of those that I, I, I would tell you that, yeah, TikTok is gone, but I end up watching it so much. I have a fear that I would end up keeping that as one of the three. I don't think I would though, because there's others that are more important. Um, I, this is going to sound crazy, but my banking app, like I, 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 like, I, well, I don't know if it would be that or if it'd be probably, no, it'd have to be Venmo because that's, oh, Venmo that's has made life yeah. so much easier when you're splitting bills with people or you go, oh, hey, can you pay me real quick for that? Sure. Let me just Venmo you 20 bucks. That is uh, incredibly convenient. I almost never have cash anymore because I'm either paying by credit card or I'm, or I'm using Venmo. Um, so it is definitely, that that's a big one. And then I guess my third one. We're all going to sound like we're such suck-ups to ourselves, but I would say the podcast app because I run to podcasts, not ours. I don't listen like to myself going down the road, but, but, <laughs> you know, I listen to, uh, you know, I mean, all, all kinds of various history podcasts, Conan O'Brien needs a friend. Um, yes. there's a lot of things that, uh, a hidden brain. Um, I, I love hidden brain. I, I listen to those as I go for jogs or I go for walks with the dog and I hate to say it on the rare occasions that I forget to bring my phone along or maybe the battery's low and I have to just walk and listen to nature. And listen to your own breathing. Oh, <laughs> it's the worst. It's like, this is terrible. I know that's, that's uh, awful, yeah. but it's true. I need, I need the companion. <laughs> All right. I guess we, we've, we've solved it. Those are it. I, there's about 50 other apps that I won't give up. So that's fair. We, you know, that was a nice discussion, but I'm still keeping them and tick <laughs> and I'll still be scrolling TikTok <laughs> later on. All right. Hey, Jason, thanks again for, uh, for joining us for the podcast. Your insight is always so welcome here. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Appreciate it. 
you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and executive producer Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. Take us along with you on your runs and dog walks. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back again next week. Thank you.